Chat, the show where I, Josh Pickford, founder of Bear Metrics, hop on a call with other founders and get the stories of how they started and grew their businesses. This week, I talk with John Sheehan, founder of RunScope, and this week is slightly different from previous episodes in that we quickly jump into the story of RunScope itself. So RunScope's story includes running out of money, laying off their entire staff, going through an acquisition on two separate times, buying back shares from investors and all sorts of fun stuff in between. Uh, also, before we jump in, if you enjoy the interviews that we do with other founders here, a rating on iTunes and sharing the episodes on social networks goes a really long way. Otherwise, let's uh, jump in on with the show. Hey, John, how's it going, man? Hey, good. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. You bet. Absolutely. So, um, so for this episode, we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit, um, we're going to talk about sort of the origins of RunScope, but RunScope's got a interesting story uh, that you don't hear often in that it got acquired multiple times. And, um, and so from that perspective, it's very atypical. So um, I guess I want to jump into that uh, as quickly as possible, but I would love to start with um, like a brief history of what preceded RunScope, because you worked at a number of co companies that uh, everybody that's listening would have heard of. Um, so I'd kind of, and you've been involved in lots of companies too, like in just various capacities. So I'd kind of love to hear what your, what your story is that led up to you being the founder of, of RunScope. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've been an entrepreneur since I was like five, six or seven years old. I used to, um, my, my mom bought a vacuum sealer and I would uh, put stationery in it and try to sell it to my dad, like pens and pencils. <laughs> and, uh, my dad told me he didn't like the kind of pens I was selling. So I went and got back and got different pens and then came back the next day and sold them those pens. So it was a little bit of, uh, you know, product market fit, you know, research there. Uh, so I, I started really young. Uh, and then in high school, I started doing web development and computer repair for money. Uh, went from there to working for various agencies and tech companies in the twin cities, um, sort of at different stages of, of, uh, company size, uh, but then around 2008, I, I was working on a project that needed basically, Pro programmable phone calls, which I didn't even know that was what I was looking for. But, uh, you know, Twilio launched and I, I came across that and started using it and loving it. And, um, basically evangelizing Twilio just for fun. Cause I was so, so such a fan of the, the company and the product. And so when a job opportunity opened up, uh, in 2010, you know, I, I, I jumped at the chance and became their first developer evangelist and started when Twilio was about 10 ish employees, somewhere around there. So, um, you know, spent a couple of years there going from, you know, developer evangelism to running that team to becoming a product manager. Uh, and then, you know, having to be a very different company as it had gone from like 10 people to over a hundred and, and sort of, you know, I think a lot of people know where Twilio ended up now and, and, uh, you know, going public and sort of being like this poster child for, you know, developer tools company. Um, from there, I sort of, I was looking to get sort of out of developer tools and, uh, you still really like the idea of like APIs and connectivity, but it just sort of didn't want to be working in developer tools. And one of Twilio's customers was if this and that or if, and so I, I kind of uh, got to know them through working with Twilio and uh, turned out there, there was just sort of a fit to, to work there after that. So I, I started at Ift and worked there for six months and uh, sort of ended up becoming back working on developer tools again. And so I had this realization that, you know, maybe this was sort of my, my calling was, was working on developer oriented products and, yeah, so were, you, were you um, like, obviously you're working on these developer oriented products, but you were doing, you know, especially at Twilio, this like 
developer sort of evangelist stuff. Like, did you consider yourself a, a programmer or an engineer? Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been coding for a, re- a really long time. I think I started around you know seventh or eighth grade with you know basic on an Apple II, and then I got Visual Basic three for one of my birthdays in like eighth or ninth grade, somewhere around there. So you know, I've been I've been coding for a long time, and when I worked at different aid, the different web development agencies in the Twin Cities, you know, I was primarily writing code. Uh, most of the time. Now, I never really wrote code for like the satisfaction of being an engineer. I always had other problems I wanted to solve. And, you know, code just was sort of a byproduct of that. Software was the best way to solve those problems, uh, which I think was what led me to be a really good match for working at startups where you end up working on a whole bunch of other problems that aren't the software and or in order to like make the software. So, um, you know, I was always focused on the solution. And I think that also helped me cross sort of outside of development circles and, and really help people understand like the business implications of using certain software or the way they could, you know, uniquely solve business problems using software and, and not just, uh, you know, trying to, um, push software for software's sake. So, um, I think that's where I ended up really well suited for the developer evangelism role. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you're, uh, you're at IFT working on similar role as Twilio basically. So I was working on basically bringing on more channels onto the, the if, if, uh, platform. And so I was doing coding and sort of development, business development, working with the, the partners and sort of evangelizing if to these companies that had APIs that we wanted to get, you know, onboarded onto the system. And, uh, you know, what I, what I kind of kept running into was, you know, really frequent problems doing API integration. So, uh, most APIs in the world are terrible and, they break, they're slow, they don't work. And sort of kept running into this problem. And that if it was like really, really magnified because they had so many API integrations. I mean, I think they have thousands now. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of reminded me of like what Twilio customers would go through. Now, thankfully Twilio was like, you know, among the best APIs I'd ever worked with, but even still, you know, you'd, you'd run into problems where there'd be subtle changes or slowness or behaviors that you weren't expecting and your application experience was dependent on having reliable API access. And it sort of just got me thinking about, you know, tools that we could build to help, uh, alleviate some API problems. And so, uh, uh, was talking about this with, a uh, another, uh, Twilio employee, um, who was on the engineering side and said, Hey, I think, you know, there's an opportunity to do something around API tools. I don't really know what that is, but, um, you know, we've got some good background here. We're having Twilio on our resumes and I think we could go, you know, raise a round of funding to try to build some API tools. And he said, great, let's do it. And so we, we started fundraising, uh, just about, Let's see here. It'd be about six years ago, uh, this month or next month, and then uh, you know took a couple months, but uh, ended up landing a seed round basically on a like I don't, it's barely an MVP. I mean, it was ba- essentially a prototype of uh, an API debugging tool, and we were able to get a seed round from that, and then we were off and running, and uh, you know hired a small team, released the first version of the product, and sort of made a couple iterations, and uh, very quickly ended up on our API monitoring, API testing sort of second product about six months later. And then from there, that really just became the business going forward. Um, based on the traction of, uh, you know, that first year after the seed round, we were able to get uh, an A round the next year and, uh, you know, grew the company from there uh, from about five people to about 20. And um, I think that's actually where the story gets interesting, <laughs> if you ask me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to, you know, talk about, you know, going from the A round to from what happened next. Yeah, absolutely. I get, so uh, before we jump into that, what what sent you down the path of like typical, you know, because at that point you'd been working um, in and around, I guess, the San Francisco area. 
uh, and follow the model, typical model of like startups in that area where you've got seed, a seed round, then you go to a round, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, and I'm curious what the motivation was for doing, to, for raising a round to begin with. Like what was the, what was the goal when you started when you didn't even really have much of a product? Yeah. So a couple factors. One, like there was very clearly like a seed funding boom going on. There was lots of money available. Um, you know, we would see other people raise rounds on, on just an idea and a team, uh, you know, and, and so there was like clearly like a, uh, an opportunity, um, you know, to, to more easily get a seed round. I don't want to say that it was easy, just more easily. Um, second thing was you know, having come off, you know, the experience of working at Twilio from, you know, 2010 to end of 2012, when it was going through this huge, you know, growth spurt, um, you know, I think that gave us a, the confidence to know like uh, a little bit more of like what goes into scaling a startup. So I f- definitely felt like there was a, um, an advantage there of having worked at a startup that had gone through that. Uh, thirdly, we had, you know, Frank and I really just wanted to work together. That was a big part of it too, is how can we find a way to work together again? You know, I tried recruiting him to IFT and for a variety of reasons that didn't work out. So we were looking to work together, but also then build a company focused on working with, uh, you know, people that we wanted to work with, basically picking our team, uh, more or less. And so that was another big part of it. Uh, there was also a big push around API tools at the time. So, you know, the big ones at the time were like Apogee and Mashery and, you know, raising big amounts of money. Apogee was on an IPO track. Um, you know, there was, you know, a decent amount of M&A going on around uh, API companies. And so we thought, uh, you know, VCs would very, be very interested in that. So combine that again with coming off of Twilio, which a lot of VCs felt like they missed on saying we're X Twilio, we're API domain experts. We're going to build some year on API tools uh, the environment just was really ripe to raise on that. Now I counsel people a lot not to raise a seed round before you've built anything. Um, there was sort of like personal factors that went into that one living in San Francisco, as everyone knows is very expensive. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that we could continue to pay rent. And one of the ways to do that was to essentially get VCs to, to pay our rent for a while. Um, and that's why we ended up raising the seed round more or less was so that we could start working on it, uh, and not have to be worried about, you know, making salary along the way. So that was all the factors that essentially went into it. Um, you know, we, we sort of through the process of pitching it and, and sort of thinking through it, I think we did, uh, sort of eventually kind of land on, uh, on a big enough vision that would have justified, you know, further investment. And especially once we got products out there that started to gain traction, um, you know, I definitely saw an opportunity to, to achieve those, um, sort of outcomes. I like, I'd be sort of, disingenuous if I said from the beginning that the moment we thought about API tools, we thought we had a billion dollar business on our hands. I don't, I don't think that was really ever the case, but um, you know, I think once we started opening doors, there, there definitely seemed to be like a lot of opportunity there uh, to reach some, some of those, you know, uh, higher outcomes if, if everything had, had, had broken right, basically. Did, were you, did that idea, the, the idea of growing the company excites you more or was it the product side? Like, I guess for you, is the company stuff more exciting or the product stuff? Yeah. So that definitely changed over time. Like early on, I was a hundred percent more into the product part of it than the company part of it. Um, you know, I like, like recruiting, you know, get exhausting. Fundraising is horribly exhausting. It's like not a fun process in at all. Um, you know, there was all the backend admin stuff, you know, the, you know, actually being able to charge money and accounting and all of these things that go into that, you, you know, we, I, I didn't really enjoy that much, uh, early on. We actually outsourced all of our 
finance, tax, accounting, HR to a third party company. And that was, I feel like that was one of the best decisions we ever made. Cause I just didn't end up thinking about it at all. Um, I think over time, especially as we hit adversity, I ended up really shifting to be much more interested in the business side of it. Um, you know, as we'll talk about later, you know, we went through a, a big sort of adjustment, you know, we, we laid off our entire staff and, um, we were not profitable, uh, prior to that. And suddenly we, you know, weren't going to be getting any more funding and we had a lot of finance issues to navigate and, you know, we, we sort of managed to do it and kind of come out clean on the other side and, and profitable and self-sustaining. And so, you know, I think through that process sort of trial by fire, you know, I, I think I developed more of an affinity for like running a business with solid business fundamentals and not just like uh, having the VC cushion let us get away with a lot of mistakes for a long time. So I think now I, I probably lean maybe like 60, 40 more towards, you know, building companies than building products. Yeah. Well, I think that's it because a similar experience for, for Bear Matrix a couple of years ago, we were at the like, oh gosh, we're going to run out of money. And so it was, you know, we've got to start tweaking all these things so that we don't run out of money. And like through that, figuring out, like having to dig in and really optimize certain things or figure out what knobs you can tweak to, you know, make something work brought about a certain type of or certain certain tasks or like things that you have to do to run a business that I otherwise would probably not have come across that I, I mean in hindsight were kind of on some level enjoyable um yeah and they become kind of obvious right once you're forced right. to make those trade-offs and you know you you need you like you need the 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 pressure of those situations sometimes to make uh, better decisions. Absolutely. So, okay. So you guys seed to a round, go from five to 20 people. And, and then like, what's the next thing where it's like, okay, we've got something, something's happening. Yeah. So, you know, product wise things were going really well. We were getting a lot of really good, uh, sort of natural adoption. You know, we were spending a lot of effort trying to engage developer communities, given, you know, my background and, and sort of, you know, the nature of the product. Um, what we weren't really doing was uh, doing any sales, right? Like we were, we were basically letting customers come in, self-serve trial, self-serve upgrade. Occasionally, you know, a, a big enterprise customer would come through and say, you know, we need all the things that go into an enterprise deal and we'd slog our way through it and we'd get a bigger deal, but we weren't really doing like sales in any sort of organized sense. And so, uh, you know, VC rounds are, are tend to be structured in like 12 to 18 month windows. Like VCs want to see you make measurable success in, in about that amount of time between rounds. And so, you know, for the first about 12 months after the A round, like, you know, products growing, we're signing up developers, revenue is growing, but it wasn't really like taking off yet. Like all the numbers were good. We were meeting every goals, but it wasn't like becoming the rocket ship. And so, um, about let's see, about nine months into our A round, end of see twenty thirteen, I think we are right now, um, or twenty fourteen. Um, our VC said, "Hey, I have a friend I want to introduce you to. He's a new partner at a at a uh, VC firm. They're way behind on enterprise. They're trying to catch up. I'd love for you to meet them. They're they're being really aggressive with uh, enterprise investments right now. Uh, we I know it's early. You know, we may have had like a hundred k." ARR at that point. Right. And so, uh, they're like, but you know, they're, they really got to get into the space. So you should go meet with them. And so like really fast and furious, we went through like a series of meetings with this partner and like all the way up to like a full partner meeting, even though it wasn't an official partner meeting, but, um, basically pitched the whole firm. They're like, yeah, yeah, we want to do this. You know, we want to give you, 
you know, $15 million on a 60 million post. And we're like, wow, this, that's like an insane valuation. Like our A round just happened like this year, earlier this year, that valuation was, was probably high. Uh, this one sounds insane, but you know, we kind of always had this joke, like if it's a bubble, we should like cash in, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, like if you can identify a bubble, that's an opportunity. Right. And so right. we thought we, we were, we were identifying a bubble. And so, uh, you know, we ended up wrapping up a couple of their VCs because if they did make us an offer, we wanted it to be competitive. And so, uh, you know, we thought we were in good shape for that to happen. And then it just, it fell apart, like almost overnight. Uh, the, the, uh, preemptive interest faded. It sounded like there was like crazy amount of politics going on at that firm and it was in total chaos. And, uh, basically that fell apart. And without that one, we couldn't push the other ones really to make us an offer. And so, you know, here we are about six months away from when we should be raising. And we just sort of played our first cards on our B round and like busted out basically. Yeah. And so that's not a good spot to be in. Cause now we have less options for when we should have been raising, uh, Go about six months later, I think we were up to maybe like 250 in AR by then. Again, things are, are growing. They're, you know, they're doubling like every six months or whatever. And, um, you know, things were good. And, you know, we went out and did a, a full raise knowing that we were down to like basically six months of money at that point. Right. So that's, that's usually when you go raise, you got six months left. We had already sort of extended our round out longer than, than planned. And so, uh, you know, did the full thing, got, very close with the number of firms, but basically just could not get, get the B round done. Um, and so, you know, be, between the one earlier in the year and then the full raise mid year, like we had basically played all our cards and we're in a very tough position fundraising wise. You know, we tried to make adjustments based on feedback we got in both of those fundraise processes around like higher VP of sales and a lot of other like cliche startup advice that you get from people who, uh, have not been in this specific situation before and are just trying to throw spaghetti at a wall to see what sticks. And so, um, you know, we, we failed out on the VP of sales surge. Uh, we finally got a, a, a more than competent, amazing salesperson in, uh, sort of after that, uh, um, fundraise and like had our best quarter at the end of the year. But, um, you know, sort of looking out, you know, we, we needed more money, but the fundraising options had dried up. And so, you know, we, so, we sat down. So, well, yeah, so on, the, on the B round, when you were trying to raise the B round, like what were you guys, were you re trying to raise when you were doing 250,000 ARR? Yeah. So the, the, I mean, the benchmark was, was, um, basically five to 10 million was sort of like the, the comparable ARR for companies getting B rounds at the time. Yeah. And like, we were somewhere between like by the end of the year, you know, 250 and getting close to a million maybe. Um, so we were, you know, we were a ways off. Right. And, and, you, you know, part of our strategy was that we would offset any like early revenue slowness with developer community engagement, but we also weren't signing up developers at a rate that was fast enough to really stand out. Um, again, like totally solid, good numbers and, and met all our goals. But, you know, if you looked at something that was coming along at the same time, like Docker, who was signing up as many developers every day as we had like signed up that month, like, or that year even, I mean, like we, we were just we couldn't make that number stand out. So like our sort of backup metric to go off of that wasn't revenue was just not, not strong enough to carry us. If we had been signing up, you know, a million developers a year, we probably would have raised no problem, but you know, it was a fraction of that. So, so you're not, you're ultimately not able to close the B round. So ultimately not able to close the B round. You know, we talked to our investors and say, okay, what are our options here? Generally in this case, uh, 
your last round investor has set aside money for this situation and will try to find a way to, to buy you some more time. Um, you know, it's not a round that everyone wants to take, whether, you, you know, it's a sandwich round or bridge round, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in our case, uh, uh, our investor said, sorry, we're, we're, we're not going to bridge you. Like we don't have anything more for you. And so we were basically left without any options at that point, other than to try to sell the company. So this was right around the end of 20, 15 now, uh, where we're out of money. We've got like a, you know, a huge burn rate. We're burning hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And we had been trying to keep the team together to, cause we figured we were going to raise and we didn't want to have to get rid of people and try to restart and rebuild. And so, uh, our investor said, we'll give you basically a loan to get through, um, to get through an acquisition. So we, we basically went out and tried to sell the company and that, that started the sale process right, right, right away sort of like the end of 2015 beginning of 2016. So what, why even go, why go direct to, well, we've just got to sell the company versus try to buckle down and get profitable. So <laughs> I, I think, you know, we were really concerned about keeping the team together to like, I think a little bit to the ultimately to the detriment of the company. Now I don't want to like say that I regret it. I think maybe I miscalculated the importance of that in hindsight. Like I, I loved that team that we built and I loved every one of those people. And, um, I really didn't want to get rid of them, but if I were to like try to step back and take like an objective, more objective view of the business, like when, when the June fundraise did not work out, we probably should have laid off probably at least half the team then just to buy us a little bit more time. And then if it hadn't worked out by the end of the year, probably, you know, laid off more. Um, that's probably would have been like an objectively wise decision to make to prolong the life of the company. But, um, you know, our internal mantra was always like people, product, profit. And so like, we were definitely prioritizing people over everything else. And, uh, you know, when we got stuck in that situation, part of our motivation was like, we want to find a really good outcome for our, for our team, right? Like an acquisition, maybe a way to salvage this for people. Hopefully we can get to a price where, you know, people will make some money, um, and that, you know, our team members and our customers will be taken care of. Um, so I think that's where the, the prioritization came from, even if that was maybe like not the best business decision at the time. I've had, I've had a lot of time to think about that one since, uh, but I've definitely in retrospect, um, maybe didn't realize how much better for the business it would have been to sort of trim up then. Well, I mean, I asked that question like it was an easy decision, like like an obvious thing. Like, I, I get that it's not <laughs> at all, um, especially when it's like you've got these people who on some level you feel indebted to because they've, they've taken a risk with their career on you, you know? Absolutely. Yep. And so 100% get that perspective. I'm just curious if there was like, so if there was any sort of decision behind that that was like no it makes the most sense to you know to try to yeah i don't think we ever really talked about it seriously it's possible to like i don't remember every detail but I, I think we were so far off from being even break even that any layoff would have been like felt would have felt like uh too big too it much right like, like, it would have been hard to keep running the company on like right exactly yeah. yep yeah. um which we found out later was not true at all since we ended up running with two people for a while. But, um, 
so we, we go through the sale process. We had four very interested parties, but um, you, you've probably heard the the old axiom that companies are, are bought, not sold. Right. Um, you know, and so we didn't really get like great terms from anybody. Um, and so, you know, we ended up settling on one company, um, you know, that we thought was a good fit sort of like strategically, um, you know, product roadmap wise and, and, and those sort of things. But, uh, you know, we signed a letter of intent, uh, to sell, to sell to them in, uh, early February. Um, uh, I remember cause it was three days after my son was born, <laughs> my first kid was going through the midst of all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that set off a, a process to, to, you know, finish uh, the sales. So you sign a letter of intent and you go through a diligence process where they sort of, uh, you know, take a fine tooth comb over everything involved in the company. And then eventually the deal closes. Uh, you know, we set an aggressive 30 day, uh, you know, close target uh, after the uh, letter of intent was signed. Um, and the diligence process went very poorly <laughs> um, on a number of regards. One, I tried to take off immediately after signing the letter of intent, I kind of said to everybody, see in a couple of weeks, like I'm on paternity leave. Like, you know, this is a big deal to me. And like, this has been a big deal to the company that people get to, you know, be with their families during important things. And so like, I'm taking this time. Well, uh, I do not regret taking the time. The side effect was, is that, you know, things sort of got chaotic and I wasn't around to sort of manage the process. I don't know that that would have changed anything in the end, but it did sort of set it, you know, uh, bad start to the diligence process. Uh, ultimately, you know, we came to the end of the diligence process and, and our team was just, you know, exhausted from, you know, the, the past month of, of being interviewed for their jobs when they were told they were going to have, you know, jobs, no question. And sort of all of these like, uh, things that come up through diligence. Um, and what it came down to is that there was essentially a culture clash, um, that, uh, sort of blew up. So, most of our team did not want to join uh, the company that was acquiring us, um, myself included. You know, there's sort of like this two sides of this where you're, you know, I had a responsibility to the company to find an outcome for it, but like on a personal level, like also didn't really want to work there either. Um, and so, uh, with like a couple of days to go, the the acquirer sort of p- pulled out an option that they had put in the letter of intent to specify a list of key employees that were required to join. So they hadn't brought it up, but then all of a sudden, you know, they were sort of sensing this culture clash as well. And so they said, here are five names in addition to the co-founders that need to join in order for this deal to close. And so we went to those five and said, Hey, we need your commitment on this. And four of them said, Nope. And the other one said, if the other, other four do. And so uh, that sort of put us in a really, really tough position. So we went back to the acquirer and said, sorry, none of these people are joining. Um, we're like, you know, it's fine. We can, we can, we can get through it. Like they're great people. Um, we'll, we'll miss them, but like, this is not like, you know, the end of the world for the, for the product. And, uh, the acquirer came back and said, uh, yeah, actually it is. (laughs) So, uh, they, they walked away with basically about 48 hours to go before it closed. Uh, and so, uh, we really were in a pinch then. So that sort of started off this mad scramble of like, um, you know, trying to figure out financially where the company was at, you know, we were multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars sort of in the hole at that point between, you know, prepaid contracts and existing bills that we had been deferring. You know, we were, our Amazon bill got charged on our Amex, our Amex, we had turned auto pay off. We were 20 days away from our Amex getting declined and which would have shut off our servers when the next AWS bill came in. I mean, it was, it was like really, really sort of dire. Um, and so the only way, 
you know, we knew to cut costs immediately was to, to lay off the entire team. Um, and when I say the entire team, I mean, everyone except for, uh, Frank and I. And so, uh, the next morning we, we gathered everyone in, in a conference room and sort of laid out the situation that the acquisition wasn't going through and that, you know, we were not financially able to keep things going and that that was going to be everybody's last day. Um, and, uh, that was a very difficult, uh, conversation. I sort of under, I guess, under, underrepresenting that that was sort of the most difficult conversation I've ever had with a group of people in my career. And so, um, it really felt like that was the end of everything that, you know, everything in my career that had led up to that point, you know, sort of like as CEO, it's like your personal reputation feels like it's on the line, uh, for anything related to the company. And that really did feel like that was the end. Um, uh, thankfully it was a great set of people. You know, we hung out for the rest of the day, uh, you know, hung out in the office, drank, went out to dinner, had a good time. Um, you know, a lot of my sort of guilt over taking people's jobs away was, was sort of offset by most of them getting great jobs within just a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, and so, um, you know, horrible process that I would hope to never go through again. Um, but, um, you know, we, we really just didn't have any other options at that point. So, so the, yeah. those, those people, I mean, like where they had to ultimately lay off, I mean, I guess in reality, there, there's sort of two options at that point where get laid off or go work at this company that they don't want to go. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, right. you know, they'd already been given some sort of level of bad news. Um, and so, in, it, I mean, yeah, in a easy, but. yeah. And, and in a town full of options, like, why you would let the the founders of a startup that you join dictate where your next job is right. like not like I totally see where they're coming from. I think they all acted how I would have completely acted in their shoes too. Like I don't blame anyone for any of their reactions or actions during that, that, that transition time. Like, you know, we knew people were interviewing at other jobs and like, I think we were very practical about it that like, um, you know, if we were them, that's what we'd be doing too. Right. Like, uh, you could trip into a new job just walking out the front door of our office. So, um, you know, that was just the reality of it. And, and um, you know, I, I, I don't hold any of that against anybody. So you, you are now down to you and Frank. Yeah. Um, and did you, did you feel like equipped to even keep, I, I think of like myself, I, I built the first version of bare metrics and, you know, managed to make it function. But like today, if I tried to keep anything running at all, I'm so far removed that it would within hours, I would just totally screw something up. So did you feel equipped at all to even keep the business afloat at that point? Uh, no, not really. I mean, there was a lot of apprehension. The, the agreement Frank and I basically came to was, um, with no staff and if we can get rid of our office, we are profitable, right? So, um, you know, this will buy us time. We can pay back some of these debts over time. Basically like our, our lawyer, um, who was very sympathetic to the situation, you know, it's, it's funny, you go through this acquisition and it fails and all of a sudden, like you're in your worst situation ever. And the lawyer is like, Oh yeah, that process you just went through, you owe me a hundred thousand dollars for it. Right? So expensive. <laughs> right. And so, you know, we, he, he agreed to give us a payment plan, right? Like, uh, you know, we basically worked out arrangements with all of our like most non-pressing bills and the pressing ones we, you know, found ways to sort of get capital for them to sort of get our credit card up to date, that sort of stuff. Uh, so the servers would show out. But the agreement was that I would do all the customer support and Frank would do all the on-call ops and keep the servers up. Like, we'll just put RunScope into maintenance mode and we'll just keep it working 
and uh, make sure that, you know, customers aren't affected. They shouldn't notice the difference. Um, you know, we'll both be on call 24 seven, like no one, neither of us will leave the house without our laptops, which is, which is by the way, like when you're first starting up is like, sort of like, you know, I don't know, it's sort of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an idealized version of the, 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 you know, startup world, like we're so important we have to have our laptops with us at all times. But when you have like hundreds of customers, suddenly it's like this huge stressor that in a constant reminder that like anything could blow up at any second. And you literally have one other person to help with. Right. Or like, I'm going to be on a plane. I need you to know that to, in great detail when I take off, when I land so that you can make sure you're available during that time. I mean, it's just like yeah. at scale running a company with two people is not something I recommend. Um, and so, uh, that was sort of the goal. And, and, you know, we lucked out on a lot of like financial things, like right away after that, like we were able to get out of our lease and we found another startup to not only take over the new space, but buy most of our stuff. Um, we sold the rest of the stuff they didn't buy, uh, you know, through like Craigslist and stuff like that. So we like, we're bringing in money there. Um, you know, we sold off a product that we had acquired back to the original developer. That was a really quick win for getting some money back in the bank. Uh, we ended up not even taking another loan, um, to get, back in the black and like six weeks later after the layoff, like we were, we were, um, basically current on all our debts, including our legal bill and we're profitable, like between the two of us. And so like, it was just this weirdly like, um, fortunate time where like we made smart decisions and, you know, things just broke our wave, like, uh, for felt like for the first time in a couple of years. And we were able to sort of get things on solid footing, um, to go forward from there. Um, but the stress of like two people being on call, all the time was definitely the, you know, the offsetting downside of, of that situation. Well, how did, how did that feel to go from, you know, just months of, I mean, well, really the life of the company, you're, you're burning money. So to go from the stress of that, especially in the prior few months to, to being profitable, what did that feel like? Well, sort of like I alluded to before, it felt like I was actually doing my job for the first time, right? Like actually running a business and, and sort of, uh, not just coasting off of the, 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 the sort of VC cushion that we had. Right. Um, and so like, I, I have a huge sense of pride for, for basically, you know, how, how the business side of the company went in that first six to 12 months, uh, post failed acquisition, because, um, I do think that it was when I did like the best work as like the actual CEO of the company, um, and sort of not like just the head product manager role that I'd been playing mostly before that. Right. So, um, you know, I was, I was, I was really satisfied with that. Um, dissatisfied that I had essentially no one to share that with <laughs> except for Frank, right? Like we could enjoy it, but, um, you know, it didn't, it was uh, a very quiet victory, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're, you're down to two people, like, you know, you're on call all the time. Like what's the, what do you, how do you transition out of that scenario? Um, well, the first thing I did is I moved out of the Bay Area. So um, my child's grandparents all live in family, all live in Minnesota. My wife and I are both from here eventually or originally. So we moved back. Um, we became a distributed company uh, overnight, sort of in the midst of all of this. Uh, and um, sort of, I think it was maybe like three, four months after the the uh, the layoff, um, you know, our, our biggest investor called me up just sort of to check in. I think he was mostly just checking in on like, is this a liability to me or not? Um, and so, you know, it was just, he called up and he's like, Hey, you know, just want to know how things are going. You know, we kind of laid it out, you know, we're, we're, we're stable and, and things are going. He's like, all right, well, you know, since I'm not really actively working on this anymore, you know, I'm going to resign my board position. We said, great. You know, totally understand. Uh, 
And then, uh, you know, he sent me an email later saying I officially resigned my board position and I read the email and then immediately composed a new email to our, uh, HR accounting company and said, uh, Frank and I salaries effective immediately are two X what they were before. <laughs> so, uh, approved by the board of directors one minute ago. So, um, so, you know, we made sort of, uh, try to make it as comfortable as possible again, given the sort of stress level of, of, um, the on-call responsibilities, like, you know, at least try to offset a little bit. Plus at this point we were kind of stuck. Like we couldn't really sell the company at that point. Like, uh, you know, we hadn't gained an appreciable amount of value from the failed acquisition earlier in the year. Um, you know, we had no team like and at our scale, like team is like a huge part of a sale. Uh, and so, um, what, what are you guys uh, doing at this point? What are you guys doing revenue wise? Like uh, the point, like this point in the story. Yeah. It's probably like million and a half ARR at this point. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we did start to rehire a little bit. So we hired somebody in support. That was a huge, just weight off my back. Uh, you know, we hired, uh, back one of our engineers, um, who'd sort of taken the summer off and, uh, you know, she was great. Gave us sort of like somebody with like knowledge of the system again, backup for on call. I mean, just like those were just huge reliefs. Um, you know, hired somebody in sales briefly that didn't really, you know, pan out too much, but again, we were sort of like not really investing in anything. So I don't really know that it was their fault more than our fault. Um, uh, we did ship a lot of software actually that summer. Um, turns out that like, once you remove like the communication and coordination overhead of like a 10 person product team, that two people can ship things very quickly. So yes. once we sort of reacquainted ourselves with like the, the, you know, the code base, like we were shipping features left and right. Um, you know, we basically just said, we're going to attack all the lowest hanging fruit here and, uh, you know, ship as much as we can. Uh, and so Frank and I were just turning out features left and right. Um, but I think the, the big thing is we, we couldn't sell because, you know, our investors put money in the company and they rightfully owned, uh, you know, preferred stock that came, came with rights. And one of those rights is what's called a liquidation preference. And so, you know, based on the amount of money we raised, there was, there was very little chance that we were going to be able to sell the company for more than the liquidation preference, meaning the existing investors would get all of the money and Frank and I would get job offers and maybe like a nice retention package that would vest over two to four years. But like, that was having a job somewhere else was not any better than working for ourselves and, uh, you know, basically controlling everything. Sure. Um, and so, you know, we, we really just didn't look at it then, but what happened was is that one of our major investors said, Hey, you know, we, we took a write-off on your stock. Like we don't really think that your company has any value anymore. That's not the words they use, but that's what I heard. And, uh, we said, well, great. If you, if you think this is worth zero, will you sell it back to us? And they said, well, make us an offer. And so we offered them uh, to pay back the loan that we took from them, the convertible note loan that we took from them to get through the acquisition, and then $1 for the equity. Um, and this was like 20% of our cap table, right? And so, you know, I actually texted them the, the offer. And 10 minutes later, I got a text back that said, Sounds great. Send us the paperwork. And so, well, we were, uh, you know, a couple of days later, you know, paperwork's all signed. Essentially, we wiped out 20% of the stock, just evaporates. And so suddenly this liquidation preference, the liquidation stack is like much, much lower. It was like basically below our revenue at that point. Um, ownership levels like completely readjust, right? Like me and Frank as founders, our ownership level, you know, ticks up pretty significantly. Um, and then our other major investor was still there, but like the math completely changed with the buyback. And so, 
you know, we sort of waited out the rest of the year because it was kind of getting late in the year to start a process. And then at the beginning of 2017, went out again and, and started re reshopping the company. Um, you know, we had doubled revenue year over year, you know, we had a team of five now. Uh, and so there was some people there, you know, we, we were still growing and, um, well, so what's, I guess, there, yeah. you're, if you're profitable at this point, like what, what specifically is the motivation to sell, to, to go out and try to sell the company again? Yeah. So I, th I think we were looking at sort of the contrast of like, what happens if we do this for another one, three, five, 10 years? And like, what are the potential outcomes? Like maybe we could go raise some money now. Like we're, we're still kind of like damaged goods in a way. So like, we don't really think VCs are going to want to like do a big round. Um, you know, one of our existing investors said that they were willing to continue to invest in us, but you know, kind of wanted to start from scratch, uh, you know, cap table wise. And that wasn't really interesting to us. Um, and then, you know, any sort of fundraising or bootstrap self-sustaining mode is, you know, like, again, you know, let's say it's three to five years of work and let's look at the outcomes. Let's, if we even achieve all our goals and the market doesn't shift or we don't get eaten up by a competitor, like, do we think the math uh, is significantly different? And basically what the math came down to is that three to five years from now, we could do a whole bunch of work and end up with the same amount of money if we sold now at a lower price. Got it. Okay. Like we might get a higher price, but we're get, we're we are going to see less of it. Therefore, it's basically a wash. Do we want to spend another three to five years of our career working working on this? Um, and so, I think Frank and I were in agreement that we did not want to do that. Um, that we had sort of got things back into a place now where we were in the best place to sell um, and and sort of realize some immediate value and and hopefully find uh, you know a place where the product would continue to thrive and get investment and still exist, and so that our customers would be taken care of. Um, you know, you know, going forward, and then hopefully get a win for our the investors that remained and the employees that had joined uh, had joined the company at post sort of downturn. Got it. Okay, so you 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 set out early 2017 to try to find a buyer again. How does that go? Yep. And so you know, we went back to some of the same people we talked to before, um, and uh, you know, again, still a lot of interest. And I think um, you know a testament to the people who worked on the product at any point along the way, the product, the product remained solid and, and sort of, um, uh, you, you know, engagement levels were high and customers were happy. Customer satisfaction was happy. And so, um, you know, we, I think we still had something of value and, um, through the process, we ended up coming down to, to, um, you know, two different, two different buyers who were both, you know, pretty engaged and interested. And, you know, one of them just sort of, uh, was persistent enough to, to sort of stand out above the rest. And, um, we ended up getting an offer that was better than the first time around. So despite all of that, uh, you know, we, we sort of ended up in a better spot and, uh, you know, we signed a letter of intent. I think it was, you know, we set out January, 2017. We want, we were hoping to be done by like April. Um, but, uh, things never move as fast as you expect. So we signed the letter of intent in June, uh, and then went on like a 60 day diligence period. Uh, and then eventually ended up closing, uh, September 27th of 2017 last year. Um, and so that was CA technologies and, and, uh, you know, the, the entire team joined and, and CA has, uh, you know, met all of their promises and has continued to invest in it and, uh, has really done sort of great things with, you know, uh, supplementing, you know, our product side with, you know, sales and marketing and, and support and sort of all the resources to keep the product going and to keep our customers happy and bring on some new ones. They've signed more enterprise deals in the, in the, you know, past six months than in the rest of the history of the company. So, um, you know, I think we found, you know, the right, the right location for, you know, 
a company who's wants to be more like Runscope than they want Runscope to be like CA and and is willing to make the investments to make that possible. So, um, you know, that's that's where uh, things sort of closed out. You know, I'm I'm still at CA. You know, uh, working on Runscope and uh, the rest of the team is still there and and uh, uh, they they've been they've been very good to us. What I, like? How does that feel to go? Because I mean, that's just. I, it's probably more common than people really talk about the the kind of roller coaster you guys have been on. But at the same time, it's still this just sort of insane roller coaster uh, emotionally. So, like, what does that feel like? You know, years later to finally have some sort of closure on some level. Um, what does it feel like? It's weird because it feels like everything all at the same time. <laughs> like I, I frequently get nostalgic for like five people in a room, you know, working on the first version of the product, like probably was no better time in the history of the company than that. Um, like enjoyment wise, right? Like there was just barely a care in the world. It felt like, you know, we got to work on whatever product we wanted. There was money in the bank, you know, g- good times. Right. Um, but at the same time, like, uh, I'm like also like very um let's see like like proud of like how much money like you know it wasn't a huge win but like in valley speak people like to you know refer to this as a base hit and and uh I like to say singles win championships but um the uh you know like the fact that we you know we made millions of dollars in revenue and that uh you know we have you know, we've had, you know, thousands, thousands of customers use the product along the way. And like some very big customers have solved some very real problems for their businesses with it and saved themselves millions of dollars or, um, you know, those types of things. Like I, I like, you know, try to focus on, on those more than like, you know, the bad things that happen. I've, I've sort of more come to terms with the, like the, the, the bad parts. Um, it took me a long time to sort of grieve having like gone through like losing the team and losing the office that we loved and sort of, I guess, losing the vision at some point or losing the, 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 the grand slam opportunity. Um, that, that probably took me a while to to work through. I don't know. Sometimes if I'm, I'm working through that, I still won't really walk down when I'm in San Francisco, I really won't walk down the street where the office was because I don't want to walk by it. So I'm not, I'm like clearly not completely over it. Um, but, uh, you know, time, time, time helps. And I, so many good things came out of it that like, it's hard not to just, um, if I really think about it again, trying to be objective, it's not hard. It's hard not to be proud of, you know, of what we did and, and rescuing it when it was at its lowest point and, and turning it into something that continues to, you know, sort of thrive to this day. I think to me that, um, so many times these things pan or the way that they play out is the way that, you know, the first acquisition typically happens where it's, somebody sells because they have to they have no other choice um and then that just sort of like right off into the sunset in a deal that nobody was really happy with except for maybe the acquirer um and so to me it's like this is as good as outcome as any where you're able you were able to like salvage that and um i think that's i think that a lot of companies especially in the valley are not like they don't have that and they don't get that and then they're left like really burnt out and jaded um, for you, what, what is like, are you, um, are you interested in doing it again or, <laughs> or, do you, or is it like, yeah, this is fun. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And then I'm like, I'm not going to try to start from scratch ever again. Um, yeah. So I don't think I'm going to do it the same way again. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't recommend it, that path, um, really to anybody. Um, so I, I think there's probably like a part of me that, 
won't be able to not do it again. Um, you know, like I haven't like the Runscope was actually like my fourth company, right? So I, you know, in the, at the beginning, I sort of glazed over the sort of you know computer repair business, web development business, you know, sports league management, software as a service business, like all of these things that sort of along the way uh, kind of you know led up to that. So I, I think that part that's just built in, and I, and I don't think I'm ever going to be able to you know suppress that completely or or even want to. Um, I, I don't, what I don't know is like how I want to do it again. Part of me like really wants to just do something self-funded and bootstrap next time to prove that I can, yep. uh, you know, like when we were, you know, managing our own money, uh, or running on our own money and, and self-sustaining, like, I, I feel like that was a different sort of experience than the whole VC back thing. And, and again, when I sort of mentioned, I, I kind of came to prefer. And so part of me wants to see like, can, can I from scratch, you know, bootstrap, bootstrap something to success. So there's a, there's a part of like me that sort of just wants to do it for the challenge of it. Um, I don't know if that's a good reason to do something though. <laughs> I mean, it might be a good internal motivator. It may not be good for the business ultimately. Um, the, the other part of that too is, you know, if, if I go that route, it doesn't prevent me from raising money in the future. Sure. Right. Um, it would just let me do it on my terms. Um, but then there's a, a part of me too, that's sort of like wants to do something bigger still. And a good way to sort of jumpstart that is to, to raise money. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really ruling anything out for the future right now. Uh, you know, I'm still, still, still focused on Runscope for the time being as it is. And, and, uh, part of me doesn't want to be, you know, looking too far into the future when I've got a lot, a lot to do right in front of me. And so, um, uh, you know, I'm not sure, but th those are sort of the things like I've sort of, when I think about maybe, you know, five years in the future, uh, you know, maybe a couple years in the future, uh, you know, how I might approach something. I think the biggest thing though is, is finding a problem that really excites me because it's kind of, you know, there's too many hard, hard stuff to go through if you don't really like the, the problem you're working on. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so I guess, I mean, I guess that, that brings that's current day run scope, right? That's like, we're, we have, we've gone through the whole timeline. We have, we have completed the timeline. Yeah. Right. Well, man, I remember, uh, like vaguely remember this would, I guess would have been 2015 when like seeing some tweet or something of you, uh, being like something about like moving back, uh, like out of the Bay area and like you know, sort of getting down to what was ultimately have been just you and Frank and like had thinking like, Oh, that's the end of run scope or something like that. So I'm glad that you that were not. Me. Yeah. You were not the only one. I mean, what happened was, is that, so we, we, my wife and I decided to move back and um, like, we knew, like, we just knew, I just knew that was going to lead to a lot of questions, right? Like, why did you leave San Francisco? Don't you own a company <laughs> there? Right. Like, like it's not even like a stretch to like come up with a very, plausible question. So I posted on Facebook meant to be like for people that I knew that like, Hey, you know, the company went through some changes, we're moving back to Minnesota. It's still going. It's still, you know, we're still here, but I, I made the post public because I wanted to actually post it on Twitter. Cause I actually had a lot of friends on Twitter too, that would not see it on Facebook. Well, that, that was a really dumb decision in retrospect. Um, somebody submitted it to hacker news like four times. Um, they, they were like intent on that post I don't know. Eventually made it to the homepage that like, I don't know, run scope shutting down or whatever. And so there was like a, a, misper a misperception there that we were, we were done. Um, you know, when, when that, when that post got out. Um, so 
uh, you know, a couple months later when we were profitable, one of the things we did is as soon as we were like, okay, we are profitable by any, any metric we can, you know, gap accounting, whatever you, however you want to look at it, we're profitable. So let's just email all our customers and just tell them, Hey, you know, we're profitable and self-sustaining now. And so we sent out an email to, you know, our huge developer list. And that actually really helped offset that. I don't think it really came back up after that other than like a few one-off things here that said, Oh, I saw on Facebook, you guys were shutting down. It's like, well, that's not what the post said, but, uh, like market wise, you know, I think once we had a message to offset that, you know, we were able to reassure customers that we weren't going anywhere. Um, that, that problem sort of went away. Do you think you'll stay in the future, stay in the sort of developer tools? I mean, so much of your history revolves around that. Do you think you'll stay in that (laughs) sort of industry? Hmm. Maybe, probably not. <laughs> so I still think there's a lot of opportunity for developer tools and, and developer tools companies. Um, uh, I don't know if I want to do that again. Sure. Uh, I think RunScope really was the culmination of like all of the things that I was sort of um, well-suited for. So API focus and, um, you know, you know, developer outreach, but I, I, I don't know that I have like a current sort of, sort of set of circumstances that would, you know, lead to another developer tools companies, despite there being opportunity there. Um, I also like part of me wants to like learn about new markets and new areas. Like I'm really interested in like retail right now. I'm like, help, I'm mentoring at the, uh, Techstars retail, uh, incubator class that's going through at, at in Minneapolis right now. So like, uh, you know, that really, you know, is more interesting to me. I'm also really interested more in selling SaaS in like really high compliance situations. So like a lot of our customers would have to walk away because of compliance uh, issues. And like, I feel like there's this whole segment of business businesses out there right now that can't even like get on the SaaS revolution that started, you know, whatever, five, <laughs> five, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago, because they're still tied up in all these high compliance things. And um, if you can solve that, you can charge them a lot of money uh, for that. So there's things like that. And, and sort of maybe like how GDPR has, has, uh, sort of changed the status landscape that I think there's going to be, you know, sort of a new wave of like GDPR slash compliance ready SAS that comes along now, because that's the state of the world we live in. That's going to, you know, unseat or upset or take opportunity from existing entrenched players. So I think those are things I'm probably more interested in now, but like, I wouldn't rule out maybe working on a, a developer tool again, if, if I saw like the market opportunity, I think that's the other big thing that's changed with me too, is that I'm, I'm much more interested in finding market opportunities instead of like product ideas. Like, uh, I feel like the product idea should be a byproduct of, of like seeing an opening in the market, whether it's an entrenched incumbent or like a process that everyone's doing that can be replaced or something like that. Right. Like those are where the real opportunities are and the product, uh, should come out of that instead of sort of vice versa, which is how I've, um, you know, spent the last, you know, eight years of my life looking at things. And I'm trying to really sort of flip, flip my view of the world on, uh, on end so I can start with the market first and, and, and find the right product to fit it. Yeah. Well, that's great, man. I, I, I don't know that I've got anything else um, unless there's, there's some other like juicy bits of the story that got left out. <laughs> well, there, there were lots of juicy bits, but I think we, we <laughs> I think we covered, covered the gist of it. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you uh, giving me the time. And um, if anybody, I will say this, if anybody's going through, uh, you know, thinking about selling a company, selling a company, thinking about raising versus selling, or has been reached out to by a buyer and doesn't know what the process looks like. Uh, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, I love to joke that we've sold this company twice. So I, I've, I've been through this a lot and, uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to offer advice and guidance however I can, uh, you know, to leverage that sort of 
my bad experience hopefully into someone else's good experience so if anybody's out there going through sort of that that stage right now uh feel free to reach out i'm, I'm pretty easy to find on on twitter and and everywhere else so uh would love to help out if i can awesome cool well john uh thanks so much i appreciate it man all right thanks a lot josh there we have it john sheehan of RunScope. thanks for listening this week if you need revenue analytics and insights check out bearmetrics.com if you have any feedback i'd love to hear it Shoot me an email, josh at bearmetrics.com or on Twitter at Spigbert. Head to founderchats.com to listen to lots of other conversations with startup founders. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you enjoyed this, a rating on iTunes or sharing this with your friends, because it's a really long way. Thanks again. See you next week. Thanks.